0: Good morning, my friend. I am so excited to be with you today. I'm Dr. Lee Warren, and we're going to do some self brain surgery today and change our minds. I want to tell you a personal story. I was on the treadmill looking out over the North Platte River on a snowy cold day in late 2022. And I was listening to the audio book of a book called The Genius of Jesus by Erwin Raphael McManus. And Irwin said something in that book that was so profound, I stopped the treadmill and went over to my desk and with my sweaty hand made a bunch of notes and wrote some things down. It's one of only three times I can think of in my life when I've stopped a car or stopped working out because something shook my brain so hard that I had to record it or write it down right that moment. Erwin Raphael McManus's books do that kind of thing to me. The genius of Jesus blew me away. I immediately reached out to the publicist, and he unfortunately was already done with interviews for that book. It wasn't available. So I thought, man, I missed my chance to have Erwin McManus. I had read one of his previous books called The Last Arrow, which was also equally profound. Longtime fan of his work. Erwin McManus, is a mind architect. He's an award-winning author. He's an artist. His books have sold over one million copies. He's the pastor of a church on Hollywood Boulevard in Los Angeles called Mosaic. His books have been translated into more than a dozen languages. And he's the guy that CEOs and high net worth individuals reach out to, professional athletes, world leaders, celebrities. People reach out to him for coaching when they're stuck with something related to their mindset. Irwin is the guy that's known as the passionate person who can help you unlock your internal limitations and your personal genius. He talks about mental toughness, mental clarity, and mental health and how they all have one thing in common, the journey begins in your mind. Can you think of a better guest for the Dr. Lee Warren Self-Brain Surgery Podcast than somebody who talks about the importance of changing your mind? Well, lo and behold, his new book is called Mind Shift, and I got an email from his publicist at Penguin Random House who said, hey, your platforms are lining up around this mind change idea. You tried to get Erwin on the show for your, for his last book, and we want to give you an advanced copy of Mind Shift. It doesn't take a genius to think like one. I read it in two days, and then he agreed to be on the podcast. We actually recorded this a couple of months ago that he wanted me to hold it for his book launch, which is happening on Tuesday, October October 3rd, and I couldn't be more excited to share this incredible book with you. It is a Basically a condensed guide to how you can change your mind and how you can change your life and all the things we talk about on this show every day You can get a lot of that same kind of mind-blowing, life-transforming information from the genius that is Erwin Raphael McManus. Friend, I can't wait for you to meet him. I encourage you to go read his books. The Genius of Jesus and Mind Shift particularly have made a huge difference in my thinking, my clarity of thought, and have made a difference in my life. And I'm excited and really happy to introduce you to a new friend today, Erwin Raphael McManus. And that really leaves us, my friend, with only one question. is where we learn to become healthier, feel better, and be happier. This is where we leave the past behind and transform our minds. This is where we start today. Are you ready? This is your podcast. This is your place. This is your time, my friend. Let's get after it. So before we start, would you mind saying a prayer for us, Erwin?
1: Sure. <clears throat> Father, thank you so much for Lee. And I just pray your blessing on his life and that you would expand his influence, expand his message. And that God that you'd get his book in the hands of so many people. I'm so grateful for you, Father. Pray that this moment would just be honoring to you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.
0: Amen. Thank you. Friend, we're back. And I'm so excited to introduce you to pastor, author, mind architect, Erwin Raphael McManus. Welcome to the show, Irwin.
1: I'm so glad to meet you, Lee. I'm excited about today's conversation.
0: It's gonna be fun. Tell us a little bit about first of all, what in the world is a mind architect? I love that. What is that?
1: I have a feeling that we work in very similar genres, but it's interesting. A lot of people are interested in the brain. And right now there's so much brain science out there. Yep. I'm really interested in the mind, which is in you know, a little different. In fact, we were working on some uh, images and they brought me the images of the brain, both sides of the brain. I said, no, you got the wrong thing. I need an image of universe. Because yeah. I'm not interested in the physical mechanism of the brain. I'm interested in the universe that actually expands within us and allows us to have, in many ways, unlimited capacity. So for me, a, a, a mind architect is really a person that understands that every human being has mental structures, and those mental structures will either move them toward failure or move them toward success. Will actually right. either limit their capacity and potential or will unlock that capacity and potential. And I know you have been going through mind because you go into early copies of it one of the things i talk about mind shift is that and i remember the day october 26 1990 i heard someone say this phrase on sports radio about buster douglas that and why he lost to evander holyfield is that some people are simply structured for failure yeah and when i heard that statement it shook me and i remember thinking to myself do I have internal structures for failure? And, or am I internally structured for success? And do I have a combination of those? Is my brain like a maze that some days moves toward failure, some days moves toward success that I haven't really paid attention to which path I'm I'm actually choosing each day. And so I, um, all the way back to really, um, when I was 10 years old, I ended up in a psychiatric chair. Uh, they, they ended up testing me for, um, neurodiversity, as they would say now. Yeah. And back then, they would just tell me I was retarded. It's a different world. I, I do some of the new language better. <laughs> yeah. And and frankly, if I'm, I don't normally share this, but, but you're like in a different space. I'm 10 years old. I'm a straight D student. I'm, yeah. I'm having a hard time connecting to the outside world, to reality. And one of the things that saved my life was this psychiatrist who gave me all these IQ tests and came back and told me that I that I had the basic structure of a genius. Yeah. And there was no tangible proof of that. <laughs> and and if anything, it's it felt like to me, I was broken. And that I, I didn't lack, uh, I lacked the tools to actually connect to the human race. And so what it did for me was, it created an intense value in me. Because I thought to myself, if there is genius in me, and I wasn't sure, but it was wonderful to have someone tell me that. But I thought, if there is genius in me, it's trapped under a lot of rubble of my own brokenness wow. and insecurity and uncertainty and pain. And I may never actualize that. And so a huge value in my life has been this deep conviction that there's genius inside of every human being. I could have come out going, oh, I'm different. I'm special. I I have genius. What, what I came out of is I think everyone's like this. And and some people are able to access that genius, and some people are able to actualize that genius, and other people sadly die never having known their own genius. And so I feel like it gave me my mission in life. Wow. And yeah, and then when I started studying philosophy and psychology at the University of North Carolina Chapel Hill, it had one of the top three psychology departments in the world. And I just instantly began studying neurodiversity from psychosis to neurosis to... I was really fascinated with narcissistic and sociopathic behaviors. And so I spent a huge amount of my time trying to understand the the nuances of the human brain. And I've been to three neuroclinics in the world that I went as a patient. I, I didn't go as a teacher. Yeah, That's <laughs> why like people are, are you a doctor? No, I'm a patient, which gives me far more expertise. Right. <laughs> and in in several clinics, I ended up becoming a test mouse and when they did research in my brain. And, and so I ended up learning a lot about the neurological dynamics that I had to face with. And I, I have slow shutter speed. And so I have a hard time keeping out data. And so I get flooded with mass massive amounts. And so I don't have a sense of chronology like other people do. And because when you have normal rapid shutter speed, your brain categorizes time. And mine doesn't. And I have either, I either have No filter to stop information or all information blocks out at the same time. And so my kids laugh because I'll say, oh, we should go see this movie. And they'll go, dad, we were with you yesterday and (laughs) in that movie. And I'll have no memory of it. It's the weirdest thing. But then I'll meet someone. And an example, I was at this dinner like 15 years ago. And the guy sitting next to me was a guy named Johnny Musso. And he introduced himself. And I said, I'm Irving McManus. And never met this guy in my whole life. And I said, wait a minute. Johnny Musso and I said, you played running back at the University of Alabama. He goes, yeah, I did. I said, give me a second. And I wrote down in my book and my uh, notepad, his number. And I said, your number was number 22. And he goes, yeah, how could you know that? And I literally went through my mind. I found a newspaper. I saw the photograph. I looked at the jersey and I saw the number there. And so my memories, like my memorization skills are cheating. I don't remember the way. Like normal people remember, I remember differently than other people. Yeah. And, and so I'm only giving you all this insensitive background because when you asked me what's a mind architect, I had to spend my entire life learning how to take my liabilities and turn them into assets. Wow. I had to learn how to take what, what I was essentially told most of my life wow. were inadequacies and flip them and turn them into superpowers. And I'm convinced that. Maybe not everyone can do it at the same level, but I think everyone has a capacity to redesign their mind in such a way where they optimize who they are.
0: Wow, that's amazing. And there's a little point that we didn't hit as you were telling that story about how important it is to say things to people that are empowering. And we, we all accept these labels in our lives, but that psychiatrist, yeah. when you were 10 years old, told you that you were a genius. What if he had said, Hey, kid, you're a moron. What would your life have been like?
1: Yeah, it, it, it didn't even matter if he was right. <laughs> That's powerful, <laughs> isn't it? Yeah, yeah. the power wasn't in the accuracy of it. The the power was in how it began to reshape my own identity of myself.
0: Wow. It says a lot about what we say to our kids and our spouses and, and everybody around us, doesn't it?
1: Yeah, no, abs- absolutely. And and just even the the negative input. that's why growing up, I've been married 40 years to my wife, Kim. And and one of the things we really f- focused on was you don't ever tell a kid he's a liar. Yeah. You tell him he lied. And you don't call him a liar. That's right. You don't tell your you don't tell your child they're a thief. They stole, but they're not a thief. And a lot of times we have the tendency to define people by their worst behavior rather than by their best behavior. That's right. And I think it's so much identify bad behavior by identify by best behavior.
0: Wow. Yeah, I read a few years ago a book by Brian Stevenson called Just Mercy, and he talked about, and they made a movie out of it later. It was, mm-hmm. He was working in people who had been wrongfully convicted of crimes and given death mm-hmm. sentences and all that. And he sa- he was made an argument against capital punishment, and he said something similar to what you just said. He said that we should all be defined. We should never be defined by our worst decision. Our whole life should never be defined by our worst decision.
1: I I agree 100%. And and frankly, for me, that was something that was reinforced to me when I began reading, of all things, the Bible. And I was an adult when I first saw a Bible. And so I'm devouring it and reading it. And I find the story of this woman named Rahab who ends up being in the genealogy of Jesus. And I go, wait a minute. this I think she's like this prostitute ends up being in the genealogy of Jesus. And I go, wow, there's such a small story. Of her, but one positive choice redefined her entire life. And so I just noted for myself, you are always one choice away from the best version of you. Wow. And, and I remember just writing that down and uh, going, it doesn't matter if I'm Rahab. What matters is the choice I make right now. And that choice can redefine who I am. And I, I just love that kind of hope. And I feel like that's a huge part. Of, of what I, why I get up in the morning, what I'm passionate about is helping people destroy internal limitations and yeah. begin to recreate a, a new architecture inside of their own minds.
0: That's the mind architect. Yeah, you actually, your new book, and we'll get to your new book in a minute, Mind Shift. You started it, with, it startled me when I read this, like you said, the purpose, let me say it exactly right. <laughs> the aim of this book is to destroy your internal limitations. Is that right? Yeah. Is that what you said? I was like,
1: wow, Yeah,
0: come right out and just, I'm going to tear up what you think about yourself and the limits you put on yourself. And You did just a masterful job, but before we get to mind shift, I want to just give us a 30,000 foot view, Irwin, of who you are and what you do and the kind of work that you do a little bit of your background and that kind of thing. Give us the big picture of who you are.
1: Yeah, you've caught me in an interesting phase of my life, and I've had so many different phases. Every 10 years, I start a new career. And both purposely and accidentally both at the same time and so people who know me real closely might kind of work in a lot of different worlds but my my faith experience has been that I started a church in la called Mosaic
0: yeah and
1: I I started really in a nightclub that Prince used to own it was for all my friends who were irreligious and my atheist Buddhist Hindu Muslim ag- agnostic friends who or or there were ones who grew up in some kind of like Christianity or Catholicism who were angry because the church really left them jaded and it just created a space for them. And it was a very different kind of space. And Mosaic has grown and become a a positive spiritual influence across the world. But I've also in the past 20 years, I've worked as a filmmaker and a fashion designer and I write books. Uh, I coach geniuses, which is basically what I do in my life. And so whether it's uh, somebody you know, a coach in the NFL or a fashion designer who would be one of the best designers in the world or someone in the music industry or the business world. And, and I only really coach people who want to, who are aspiring to be the best in the world, the best of the best. Mm-hmm. And for Mosaic, I can give away for free everything you need to go from average to good. And so when people say, hey, how come you don't coach us? I go, most people right now are just sitting in average and everything I create at Mosaic can move you from average to good. And moving from good to great is a different level of work. But moving from great to a level of genius, that's, that requires a level of ruthlessness that most people aren't willing to bear in their own yeah. soul. And, and so it's a different level of coaching. And. Yeah. Yeah. And and so that's what I do. I I write books. I've been writing books for over 20 years. I have a graphic novel. That's on its way. I've worked with films. I've worked with music and I have a couple of fashion brands over the years. And then, and then just in a practical way, also creating this online learning community called the arena that will focus on communication, leadership, character, and big ideas. I really think communication is an art form and that we've lost the beauty of and power of words. And so I just have a real passion to help people become extraordinary communicators and to to not only make it effective and efficient, but also make it elegant and beautiful.
0: Wow. That's powerful. And the arena is going to be, is it is like an app that people can sign up for and be, it, part of? It,
1: it's or? a online community that requires like a monthly membership, and then I put all the content we create. Like I I have a master class called the Art of Communication and another class called the Seven Frequencies of Communication. And by themselves, those are thousands of dollars. But in the community, you get access to them for free. Wow. And I'm always creating new resources, new ways to redefine the architecture of your brain. And I just thought, I don't like to sell. I hate to sell. It's like my worst thing in the world. And so I thought if I create a community of learners, I think it's the future of education. If I yeah. create a learning community, I can just keep putting things in there and helping people access what they need and so i'm excited this august we're launching the arena and i think it's going to be the future of education
0: amazing you can follow erwin on instagram and find out more about that i've been following your posts and keeping up with that that's an exciting you're on to something there i think that's going to be really exciting so you'll probably see me sign up for that at some point too
1: and right behind me i don't know if you see daredevil yeah and I love graphic novels and you know mythologies. And one of the things I love about Daredevil is that he's he a kid through a tragic accident went blind, and he redefined a liability into an asset. Wow! And other people saw him as disabled, and but the true story was that it was a superpower.
0: Wow, that's so cool! Hey, give us j- just for a second. So the first time I ever heard of you was with a book that you wrote called The Last Arrow. Oh, yeah. Um, and I don't know if any of, my, any of the listeners here have, have read that book yet. Now they've heard me mention it before. Tell us a little bit about The Last Arrow and the concept, because it's such a cool, the way you started that book and why you started it. Really, a really powerful uh, image there. So let us hear about The Last Arrow for a sec. Yeah, I read The
1: Last Arrow, I think it might have been like seven years ago, because, yeah. and the reason I remember that is because it's right when I found out I had stage four cancer. Yeah. I had just finished editing the book, just got it back from the publisher and I was going to my final editing. And it was right before my wife's birthday, uh, around, I think, December 17th, that I was told I had cancer and that I had stage four cancer and that it metastasized from my pl- prostate to my bladder to my lymph nodes. Mm-hmm. And so the the likelihood that I would survive that was not extraordinarily high, I don't think. Wow. Um, And I was here finishing this book called The Last Arrow that's about how to live a life without regret and how most people think they failed, but actually what they did was quit. Yeah. And I had three weeks between being told I had cancer and having surgery that was going to last six and a half hours or so. And so I made sure I finished that book before that surgery in case I didn't come out of it. Wow. And what to me was so uh, almost like mystical was the night they told me I had cancer and my wife and kids, obviously, it was a really tough night. And they were profoundly emotional. And after they went to sleep, I opened up the manuscript and I thought, I've got three weeks to finish this book. So I went right to work that night after everybody went to sleep. And the first line I read in my manuscript was this one. I'll never forget it. It said, I need to tell you before you hear from someone else that I'm dying. I wrote that phrase a year before I knew I had cancer.
0: Wow.
1: And... When I read that, it just set me back. And, but it was almost like a, a a shifting in my soul, going, "You're okay. You've you've already written the story, and you didn't even know it." Wow. And but right after that line, right after the line where I write, "I need to tell you before you hear it from someone else, I'm dying," I wrote the most important line in the book. But so are you.
0: That's right. <laughs> And so powerful.
1: that was the point of the last arrow is that if you can begin to live your life as if you're on borrowed time and develop that level of urgency and intention, you will be able to look back without regret and finish the book. I, I thought maybe this is the perfect metaphor. I My last book is literally called The Last Arrow. I didn't know I would live. And, but I can tell you that in those three weeks, I never felt bitter. I never felt angry. And what surprised me the most is I never felt afraid. And, and I gave myself permission to feel anything I needed to feel. I, I, I didn't want to have to fake it. If you don't know if you're going to live, there's no point in faking. You might as well just be your most authentic self. That's right. And what I discovered, to my own surprise, was that there was a deep sense of courage and peace inside of me that I didn't know I had. And that I know is available to everyone. And so when I wrote The Last Arrow, and I'm so happy that I got to live and grateful that I got to see its impact around the world. And yeah, so it doesn't surprise me that's the first book that you heard from me because I, I'm i a little eccentric. So I disappeared from the world of writing for six years in the world of public speaking. I just went anonymous and worked in fashion and film. And, and then I reemerge and step back out into the world. And frankly, my whole business world, all the mentoring I do, all the masterminds, all the coaching, all the development, personal development stuff I do, mindset stuff. I've always did it really privately. This is the first year I've ever gone public. And mm-hmm. I, it's cause I, August 28th is my 65th birthday. And I told myself I made a 15 year commitment to pastor mosaic from scratch. And I've been there 30 years <laughs> and, and. I've always been really very careful to try to keep my public life very much in the space of Jesus and my private life in the business space. And now I'm taking my private work and making it public and because I actually think that there are principles I need to give the world and that there are frameworks that I need to pass on to the world. And I don't want people to have to, quote, go to church to access that insight. I don't Mm -hmm. want them to feel like, oh, I have to believe like you to learn from you. And and so I feel like this at this stage in my life, I'm trying to make my life a gift to people, and to pass on the things I've learned to help people destroy those internal limitations.
0: Wow, that's so inspiring. This podcast, we haven't really talked about this yet, but th- this podcast started out of pain, and most of the people listening or have come to my writing and my work because they've gone through something hard. In fact, the subtitle of my book, which I mailed you a copy, by the way, but the subtitle is about trauma, tragedies, and massive things that happened in our life. And so you certainly mm-hmm. have that massive thing that came along with cancer. Most of the people listening here are, have dealt with brokenness and pain in some way. We lost a child in 2013. And that's when I started mm-hmm. writing and podcasting trying to process that stuff. Mm-hmm. And, so, you know, the the big thing is when you face that challenge that very well could have been the death sentence for you, Erwin. What was your what was the relationship between how you decided you were going to move forward and your faith? What were those two things? How did they relate to one
1: another? Really, honestly, I don't even know how to think about life outside of my faith. Yeah. And it's like asking me, well, you know, what do you do when you're not breathing? When you're not breathing, you're dying. <laughs> you know, you're, right. you're suffocating. And I for me, I had a life-changing encounter with with Jesus when I was around 20 years old in the middle of college. And a very irreligious person. I wasn't against religion. I just wasn't for it. I wasn't against God. I just wasn't aware of him. Yeah. And But for me, it was a very significant shift. It wasn't about religion. It wasn't about belief systems. And I really didn't care less about heaven and was never worried about hell. So it wasn't anything like that. It was a shift in my understanding of my significance as a human being that if i were actually created by god then i had intention and calling and destiny and that there was a, a spark of the divine of genius in every human being and that needs to be treasured and valued and and so it redirected my life because i had a reason to live because i felt like humanity was desperate it's drowning in loneliness and insignificance and yeah. doubt and despair and if i could bring hope to the world it would, in a sense, fill me with hope. Yeah. And and yeah, my, my faith has always been central to my whole journey. But I wrote a book called The Genius of Jesus. And a part of the reason I wrote that book is going, I can't believe I believe in Jesus. It shocks me. I, I can't believe I believe in God. I'm still the guy that's really confused that he believes all this stuff so deeply. And, <laughs> uh, and so I wrote this book going, okay, if I didn't believe in God, and if I didn't believe Jesus was God, how would I see Jesus? Would I see him as a genius? I have a high value for those sparks of human genius. And so I began doing this ruthless analysis of Jesus, asking the question, is Jesus a historic genius? Does he qualify? If he does qualify, then what is his genius? And if he has a genius, what? how does that affect me? Does it have any transferable nature at all? Because Picasso's genius is not transferable, and Mozart's genius was not transferable, and Einstein's genius was not transferable. Even to their own children, it wasn't transferable. And yet what I find to be very unique is that the genius of Jesus is transferable, and that's what his genius is, is that somehow he moves us to becoming more beautifully human. And that book really led to this next book called Mindshift, going, all right, I know that if someone reads The Genius of Jesus, it will explode in their brain and unlock their own personal genius. But but for a lot of people that go, wait a minute, I don't believe in God, I don't believe in Jesus. So then they don't ac- access what is available to them there. Thought, How do I write a book <clears throat> that is really from the framework of social science? How do I write a book that's accessible to everyone in the world, no matter what their beliefs or non-beliefs are? And then if they have greater interest and they want to explore further, they can go backwards and pick yeah. up the genius of Jesus and begin to ask those deeper questions as well.
0: And you did that very well. And you know, it's interesting when we write, as Christians who write books, it's, it's always, is it a Christian book or is it just a book? And it's unfortunate that they're separate, but you, yeah. you lead off, you don't hide from it. Your, your book is dedicated to Jesus. You wrote beautifully to Jesus who created in me a mind shift that transformed my life from the inside out. You changed my heart, changed my mind, and changed my life. You you lead right with it, and all through the book you sprinkle in little bits of your faith. So there's no hiding from it. But you're right; it's very accessible to anyone. I told the people that listen to this podcast last year, I thought Genius of Jesus was in my top five books of the year last year, maybe ever. Mm-hmm. And I've no, thank I've, you. I probably sold a few hundred copies for you. <laughs> These people that appreciate that that too. (laughs) These folks that listen to this podcast are are readers. They always buy books and listen to them. But I want to shift into mind shift. You did shift into mind shift. You did that very well, segued into your own work. And earlier you said you you wanted to talk about the mind and not the brain. And of course, from a neuroscience perspective, that's been hotly debated forever. The pure materialist scientists want to believe Mm -hmm. that the mind is purely generated by the brain, right? It's Mm -hmm. just an artifact of electrons. And, and chemical events in the brain that create the mind. And Christians would say, no, it's God communicating with us. It's, that's how we he gave us our internal compass as a separate part of the organ of the brain. So first of all, how do you see that dichotomy, mind-brain problem? And, and how, where does that sit with you?
1: Yeah, I think I probably strangely enough fit more with the first group. And I think the mind's an extension of the brain, But I don't. but I think the brain is a work of genius. By the hand of god yep and so i i tend to, to not bifurcate the way that a lot of times christians do and I, I i i don't separate my soul from the essence of who i am as a human being and i think my body is also sacred so i don't go "Well, my body doesn't matter but my soul matters and i go no your body matters and yeah. and because if you believe you're created by god then everything that is a part of who you are it matters and if you get brain damage you get mind damage, That's whether true. you realize it or not. So to, to to me to go, Oh, your mind is something different. In your brain is, I think naive and maybe even superstitious because yeah. if you are intimately connected, but then to say, Oh, all you have is a brain. There isn't this thing called the mind. I think it's, it's unrealistic because I, I, I know it sounds a little mystical, but th- there's clearly a higher consciousness. Yeah. And I called my brother yesterday. I hadn't talked to him in ages. and. I got really sick in Mexico and I ended up getting this water poisoning. My brother lives in another city. He lives in Detroit. I live in LA and I call, he happened to call me yesterday and he goes, I told him, I said, I was really sick on Sunday. I got water poisoning. He goes, that's so weird. I was at work and all of a sudden my stomach got so sick. I had to go home. Wow. And, and he goes, could you not get sick again? (laughs) (laughs) because <laughs> so you're, you're having a negative impact on my work. I, I actually think that there's such transcendent connections between human beings, even if you don't believe in God. Just when you look at the dynamics of physics and that human perception on an object changes the reality of that object. And yeah. look, when Einstein said that energy and mass are the same thing, and it, we that seemed like superstition. Yeah. It, like the idea that matter is energy would have been superstition just a few generations ago science feels more like magic now (laughs) you know so it's like we left magic went to science and now science is magic again
0: that's right quantum (laughs) physics blew that up yeah that's what we understand quantum entanglement now that's why your brother's stomach hurts when yours doesn't we know that electrons that are entangled with one another, you can separate, you can split them and separate them across the whole world and they still behave as if they're tied together. And That explains a lot of things on the human side of how we can stand next to somebody who's in a bad mood and we get in a bad mood too. That's all about quantum physics, right?
1: Yeah. I, in fact, I, I was just in this Q&A at, at a business conference and someone asked me about how deep they're grieving for someone that, that just passed away in their life. And I walked them through quantum entanglement and I said, Your grief is actually proof of their existence. That's right. Because what you know is that your particles are still entangled, even though the distance seems to you insurmountable. And so what you're calling eternity, the particles in your being are so connected to them. The grief is actually the recognition of the space between you and them and the connection between you and them because it's still there. That's right, and I, I it, it, yeah, and I look at because I, I did a talk at a community uh, at Mosaic. I talk about things like fractals and quantum entanglement and black holes and it's my kind of- no. it's In fact, this past week, I, I the last time I spoke, I talked about epiphanies and how to have breakthrough ideas, and so it's a little different kind of space. And but some of it's because that's what's fascinating to me. But I, it, but again, it's because I think science creates the best environment for faith. Exactly. Like, if you have a superficial view of science, you can be an atheist. But if you actually have a, a developed, complex understanding of science, you can at best be an agnostic. And because I can understand being an agnostic, you can go, wow, the mysteries of this universe are just too big for me. I cannot comprehend how all this happens.
0: That's right. And
1: in fact, I talked to someone this morning in an earlier meeting. And, and cause he was saying he was agnostic. So oh, that's so much better than being an atheist. And he goes, yeah, I just don't know. And I said, no, it's not even just that. It's the mental structures. He goes, what do you mean? I said, once you become an atheist, you create self-limiting boundaries because right. what you're saying is the things that you do not understand cannot exist. And that framework will actually transfer to other aspects, other domains of thinking. And so, even if I didn't believe in God, I would never say that I'm an atheist because I refuse to allow arbitrary boundaries to limit my thinking.
0: Wow, that's exactly right. And quantum physics has blown up biology, and it's blown up astrology. Yeah. It's, you know, it's just it's changed the whole game. And anybody who's really honest who understands what's happening at the quantum level starts asking questions about god or at least origins there's an amazing book stephen myers wrote the return of the god hypothesis that you ought to check out It's just right up your alley let's talk about mind shift for a minute i promised you about 45 minutes and we're running up against i don't want to take too much of your time today erwin but tell us about mind shift It's, it's so right in my alley and right in the lane of things that the listeners in this show will be familiar with. So I I want you to just tell us a little bit about MindShift and I'm going to make people read it.
1: I feel like we've been talking about MindShift the whole time. You're right. We just, we just haven't said it. And I would say writing the book was quite a conversation with my publisher because the house I'm in is a penguin random house and with the imprint being convergent and convincing them that this is the kind of book I needed to write and the approach toward a book because when it's a very um refined book it's only i think maybe 30,000 words yeah, and short. so it's really short and i put incredibly dense concepts in a very short book you did and i cut out all the fat this is not a ribeye this is a fillet there there's just no fat on this book that's right and i because i wanted the concepts to explode fast in a person's mind and cuz i was and i know men don't read a lot and women read more than men and even like super busy entrepreneurs that I know, 10 of them, they don't oftentimes take the time to read. And so I wanted to write this book with almost like with a a red bull kind of concept of just 12 explosive ideas that will erupt in a person's mind and then force them through interest to go back and then begin to activate these in their lives And so just the way the book is written was really important to me. And then also making it a social science book and not creating the faith barrier for people. And so in the first few chapters, I don't even use really a faith example to maybe chapter three. And a lot of this because I'm going, you don't have to agree with me to for these concepts to revolutionize your life. And I really want to help you live the life you're created to live. And I'm convinced that as you move toward that, You're going to become more open toward God. I'm not worried about that. And then also realizing, and this is what my publisher was concerned, going, you're going to alienate all the Christians when your book is a social science book. And I go, you know what? I want everyone who has a friend who doesn't believe in God, who has a friend who needs help and needs new internal structures, needs to overcome these self-limiting boundaries. I want them to be able to give them this book. Even if they're atheists, yeah. agnostics, whatever they are, and so I was really very intentional about how I wrote this book and who I wrote it for. And yes, the first page of the book, it, it's it, the whole chapter says this: the intention of this book is to destroy internal limitations, and that is what every single chapter does. It it attacks a very subtle internal limitation and breaks you free from it. And one of the chapters is called Talent is a hallucinogen. Yeah, and that. It, it really is an important chapter because if you're born with a lot of talent, it's a curse. Because what happens is that when you have talent at an early age, society, family, institutions build external structures around you so that they can extricate all that talent out of you. But they don't care about you. They care about your talent.
0: That's right.
1: And then the moment that talent is longer beneficial, they remove those external structures and you self-destruct. That's what happened. That's why what 75% of professional athletes are bankrupt within five years after they finish playing pro football. It's because all the structures for success were external, built around their talent. Once their talent has been extricated, the structures are gone, their life collapse. And then if you grow up without obvious talent, which would be me, I grew up with no clear obvious talent. You end up, if you succeed building internal structures for success. And you're oftentimes completely unaware of what those structures are. And so it's a hit and miss. You hit the right structure, three times you hit the wrong structure. You go back to the right structure, two times you hit the wrong structure. And depending on your ability to recognize patterns, the faster you begin to realize, oh, this works, this doesn't work. This works, this doesn't work. This works better. This works with less efficiency. And so what I want to do is I want to accelerate people's learning and help them move toward their optimal performance as fast as possible. For me, mind shift is a cheat code for how to get to the best version of yourself.
0: I love it. And I think you hit the target. You really did. Let's take one example, imposter syndrome. Give us a thought process about that. It's one of my favorite parts of the book, imposter syndrome.
1: Were you going to have to tell me what you saw.
0: So my favorite part, this paragraph right here, I was just pulling up my iPad. There's a part of us that feels as if we are faking it to some degree. All of us feel that. Even brain surgeons feel it. We mm-hmm. still feel like we're going to walk in a room and other brain surgeons say, you shouldn't be here. Like We still do. It's true. It has become known as imposter syndrome. I certainly am no different. I never feel as if I deserve to be in the rooms I'm invited into. I'm always surprised when I'm invited to speak. If you never feel good enough or talented enough or prepared enough, Welcome to the party. Still, it's different from faking it. So what's the difference between imposter syndrome and faking it?
1: That's funny. That's in the chapter called No One Knows What They're Doing. And that was one of the most liberating shifts in my mind. When I finally realized I'm not the only one who doesn't know what they're doing. That's right. (laughs) because i everything i've ever done whether it was in fashion design or in filmmaking or whether i was writing books or working as a uh, you know a mindset expert i always felt like do i really know what i'm doing or everyone else knows what they're doing everyone is great at this and yeah. i'm just trying to get great at this and one of the most liberating things in my life is to realize that the best place you're ever at is when you're an amateur yeah. It, it's when you think you've achieved expertise that you're actually in danger because you're no longer willing to learn or think you you need to learn. And, but I think the difference between imposter syndrome and faking it is that faking it is really about your image management. It's that you spend all your energy trying to convince other people that you are something you're not. That's right. In imposter syndrome, is actually about, if I go with it this way, is giving yourself grace where you realize this is who I'm committed to becoming, but I'm in process. So of course I'm imperfect. Of, Of course there's enough evidence in me to say I'm not good enough for this. But there's also enough evidence in me to say I'm committed to becoming the best at this. And I think the best way to overcome imposter syndrome is don't focus on who you are. Focus on who you're becoming.
0: Yeah, that's the line. That's um. the line. I was hoping you were going to say. Yeah. I love it. Irwin, you've done a beautiful job at this, and it is going to hit the target that you shot at, which is going to appeal to everybody, regardless of our faith or lack thereof, because we come upon this idea that our the thing that is limiting the most is how we think about our lives. Mm-hmm. And as you said, can't change your life until you change your mind. So yep. somebody that's listening to the show today has just gotten that news like you did, has just gone through the hardest thing they've ever going to go through. They've lost a child. They've gotten a bad diagnosis. What what does Erwin McManus say they ought to do next?
1: Whenever you've gotten bad news, one, I hope you have people in your life that you can share the weight of that pain or that burden or that disappointment, and which I do. I've been married for 40 years and I have Kim. I have two kids that are 35 and 31. They've become my best friends, not just my children. I have a community of friends and people in my life that if I call them, they show up. Yeah. And I, I actually think people who have sustained success make relationships their highest value because relationships are really the most important commodity for true wealth. And, but if you lack that in your life, one of the things I would do is I would step back and realize that no matter what you're facing, it's not your whole story. It's not as learned optimism says, the failure isn't permanent. It's not personal and it's not pervasive. Yeah. And I think Zeligman talks about that. And so I step back and always look at everything good in my life. I step back and look at things that I'm really grateful for. I step back and make sure the environment from which I'm absorbing this pain is gratitude Because what I've discovered is that gratitude is far more powerful than disappointment. And when I am thin on gratitude, the smallest difficulty or tragedy or hardship brings me down. And when I'm rich in gratitude, I'm incredibly resilient and I can face pretty much anything in the world.
0: Wow. Amen. Erwin, thank you so much for your time. I I pray you've rich blessings on your work and in your life. You're doing good things and just a great honor to have a few minutes to talk to you today.
1: Hey, thank you so much, Lee. It's great to meet you and get to know you.
0: Hey, thanks for listening. The Dr. Lee Warren podcast is brought to you by my brand new book, Hope is the First Dose. It's a treatment plan for recovering from trauma, tragedy, and other massive things. It's available everywhere books are sold. And I narrated the audio book if you're not already tired of hearing my voice. hey. The theme music for the show is Get Up by my friend Tommy Walker, available for free at TommyWalkerMinistries.org. They are supplying worship resources for worshipers all over the world to worship the Most High God. And if you're interested in learning more, check out Tommy Walker Ministries. Org. If you need prayer, go to the prayer wall at wleewarrenmd.com slash prayer, wleewarrenmd.com slash prayer. And go to my website and sign up for the newsletter, Self-Brain Surgery, every Sunday since 2014, helping people in all 50 states and 60-plus countries around the world. I'm Dr. Lee Warren, and I'll talk to you soon. Remember, friend, you can't change your life until you change your mind. And the good news is you can start today.